meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, brought to you by the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. Listeners, I want to start today by acknowledging that you have your choice of medical schools to which you could apply. They all get you an MD, make you a doctor, but there is only one medical school, our very own Carver College of Medicine, that has my co-hosts, Liza Mann. Hello. Tarun Kadaru. Hi. Cole Chaney. Hello. And Hillary O'Brien. Hello. Think about that when you're choosing a medical school. Um, there is another medical school out there that has a student, um, and that student is today's guest. His name is Ian Drummond. What's Ian, up, guys? Ian is a fourth-year student at that school, which is important <laughs> because Ian is the host of a podcast called The Undifferentiated Medical Student, a show that you should be listening to if you're trying to decide on a medical specialty. Uh, the goal of The Undifferentiated Medical Student is to help uh, himself and all of you understand the 120 medical specialties that, uh, that are listed on the AAMC website to make an informed choice about your medical specialty. Ian, welcome to the Shortco Podcast. Uh, Dave, thank you very much for having me. So uh, yours is a, an amazing idea for a podcast. It's kind of the, it's the thing that I think podcast is ideal for. Um, tell us about uh, the undifferentiated medical student. Yeah, so you, you nailed some of the talking points, uh, but I'll take you back to why I'm doing this. Um, and it focuses mainly on the problem of choosing a medical specialty and playing a career in medicine, which is something that a lot of medical students struggle with, uh, myself included. And there are any number of reasons for this. Um, I think that some of the main ones are that there are so many medical specialties out there. You mentioned the number 120. And that's just the number that is listed on the Careers in Medicine website. Um, there are so many other niches and corners of medicine in which you can practice, of which medical students get very little exposure. Um, but I think that medical students in general have a hard time thinking about uh, their future careers and all of these specialties um, because there are so many options, um, sometimes because they don't feel like they know enough medicine yet to even start the discussion. Um, and then they might not have a mentor and if because that's there's no obvious candidate for them or they're hesitant to reach out to one because they're embarrassed by their own cluelessness any number of reasons for that so I made this podcast to champion this overwhelmed medical student and to empower them to start thinking about these specialties and their future careers on their own and just so I don't sound like I'm totally altruistic I'm doing this for myself as well I'm trying to answer my own question about what I want to do with my career um, but where I'm starting is by interviewing the 120 plus specialties and subspecialties listed on the Careers in Medicine website, which is hosted by the Association of American Medical Colleges, which I take to be the authority on uh, medical education, at least in North America. So I thought it would be you a would good think, place yeah. to start. Yeah. This is what I love about medical students. Sometimes you guys come up with the most complicated, br brilliant ways to answer your questions. <laughs> um, so that's why I'm doing it. Yeah. Put as much effort into it as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Don't I do sure things I by half measures. I was to Cole and Dave beforehand that just saying that I hate myself for having chosen to do 120 <laughs> interviews, but I truly believe that this is what needs to happen, at least for me personally. And yeah, you should start with, say, the base 24 specialties that are listed on 
uh, what is it, the American Board of Medical Specialties, which is the umbrella organization that sort of coordinates with all the other American boards, like the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Surgery. And ideally, I would start with those 24 specialties, uh, but it's been pretty hard to dictate what interview I do next because I, I work off referrals. That's just the most efficient way to do it. Um, and there's definitely an argument to be made, like, oh, yeah, just choose one of the base 24 specialties and then you can and then you can uh, troubleshoot and course correct once you get into residency. But but for me personally, I think 120 is important because what I hope to happen and what is already starting to happen is I am developing a sort of higher resolution idea of how one can put a medical degree into practice. What are the ways that we can use our medical degree to, you know, to shape the careers that we want? And it's, and just hearing ideas from all the physicians that I've been interviewing, um, I'm slowly learning the talking points, what's important, what did they find important, and it's just helping me, and I hope it will help others start the thought process for themselves, because knowing where you're going, even though you can't know with 100% certainty where you'll end up, but having a good idea of where you might want to end up helps you take advantage of the opportunities that you do have in medical school. And it, you know, it, if nothing else, it, it provides motivation to start asking questions for yourself. And starting that process as early as possible is key because Cole, as I'm sure you have run into and many of your classmates have run into, you start feeling like you don't have enough time to make a good decision before you have to start submitting residency applications and even before that planning AI. So there's just so much that needs to happen and not to mention you have so much studying to do. So show me the time <laughs> where like an you have to explore all these options and Zero you know, yeah. great, you have your own solution there. but. Uh, I'm guessing you all feel pretty pressed for time. Mm -hmm. yeah, they, we, just, they just got done with the neuro exam. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say out. that we just came out of a neuro exam. Yeah, so we feel, we're feeling real great right now. Yeah, a little rough. <laughs> Ian, I want to ask you about, uh, speaking of studying and curriculum, there's always yeah. this thing called hidden curriculum, you know, this sort of undercurrents, culture of medicine, things that aren't taught in the textbook. And I was realizing with some of your podcasts that there's the words these people say, then there's sort of the vibe they put off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was realizing I was almost getting as much out of them. Um, there was one physician who went from derm to IM to EM and like, you know, he was sort of this renaissance man. There's this other guy that was just hardcore surgery. Um, what do you think you've gotten that if I just typed out a transcript, maybe I wouldn't get. But by talking to these people, you're starting to absorb some lessons. Uh, Cole, you just you just set set me up for, a, for <laughs> that on there. Appreciate it. So obviously I love podcasts um, and one of the reasons for this is pretty much the power of the spoken word which is there is a huge difference between hearing a passionate and knowledgeable person speak about what they do and then just reading those words and it's about like how do they hesitate before they answer how excited do they get um so there's definitely a the vibe i mean how excited really are they about their specialty there's so much that you receive hearing somebody speak about what they do versus just, you know, reading a description of what they do. Yeah, I, 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 I got that from, um, I was listening to, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but the, uh, the, uh, uh pediatric neurologists, oh, recently, yeah. one, the more recent one. Too. And, uh, uh, Oh, child. Yeah. Child he was neurology. On CNN. Yeah. Child neurology. The autism uh, debate. Right. And, um, and I, I just, you know, you totally, he, I caught his, 
you know, his enthusiasm is his, uh, his, yeah, <laughs> for the, for the specialty and for what he was doing, which is, I had, tr- uh, I had trouble controlling him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a big thing I wanted to talk to you about, Ian. I am cracking up, you know, so I've been on the wards a lot fourth year and I basically get told to do things and I do them and they say jump and I say how high and I'm dying laughing because you are, you are telling yeah. some of these titans of their, their field and they sort of wander off and you'll say, no, I'd like to get back to a point we discussed, you know, about military versus civilian. And they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. And then they'll sort of go into it. So Yeah, I was noticing I, that. Shepherding these cats. Tell me about that process. <laughs> uh, it's been a slow build because there's been a, uh, you know, I don't know how many interviews, not that many, but where I get to the end of it and I'm really upset because I can't use it because the conversation went off in too many different directions and I ask a lot of listeners. I mean, my episodes are usually an hour and a half long. And if I saw that time stamp on anything, I'd be like, oh, I'm, Do I'm I really very hesitant to, to press mm-hmm. play. Um, so I spend a lot of time trying to ensure that I gain the trust of the listener so that they start to trust me that their time is going to be well spent. And so... Again, I, I've lost uh, a couple interviews where I just like I can't use this because oh, I I didn't stop the physician and I didn't couch what they were about to say with my own question or I didn't save what they said for the the appropriate part of the interview, and so it was too jumbled. And I would listen to these things and I'd say to myself, "Gosh darn it, why why didn't I jump in and stop them?" Because now we're both upset. You know, we just wasted an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, with the preparation for the interview, and we didn't get to talk about what we wanted to talk about. So I've gotten very bold at just telling these physicians, you know, and when they're in the room with me, it's much easier because um, I can make hand signals to them like, let's, OK, let's let's stop. And then, you know, we can cut out a side conversation and I reorient them. But again, a lot I've just we've wasted. A, I personally have wasted my own time and the physician's time when we don't get it right. So I've gotten pretty bold about cutting them off. So you're doing more than 120 interviews then. <laughs> so it's starting to look like that. So that. You know, one thing that I'm realizing is that there are so many interviews that I could do, and 120 are really only the ones that the Careers in Medicine website lists. And I think that the Careers in Medicine website lists them because they have a board certification associated with them. But there are so many specialties that have you know, legit certified fellowships to train you in, in, you know, their little area of medicine, but don't come with a board certification. When I was listening to the family medicine or somebody talking about family medicine and, and I was interested in different aspects of it, but he, because family medicine is so broad, he had like only certain things to say about like private practice because he wasn't in private practice or certain things about that. So those aren't even like, um, board certifications they're just different parts of one absolutely yeah Yeah. i mean the context of how you practice and the questions that i it's one of my favorite questions you'll keep hearing me say in the episodes you know so how does the practice of your specialty change with inpatient versus outpatient academic versus private versus public urban versus suburban versus rural uh civilian governmental military national and even international versus interstellar who knows I mean, there's so many, I mean, these are not board certifications, but you're absolutely right. They change how that area of medicine is practiced. And in what do we get in medical school? We usually get an urban academic inpatient experience. And so not only do we get a very small sliver of specialties during say our third year or even all of medical school, but we only get a very small sliver of that specialty. So 
to, to, to think that a medical student is making an informed decision about what they want to do with their careers based on the experiences that they're given in medical school is ludicrous, in my opinion. Bam. So right. I could do a million <laughs> interviews. Um, and, and unfortunately, most of the interviews I have done to date are only by academic physicians. Um, but I've, I'm really, truly trying to branch out and get private physicians, physicians who have gone into industry and, and are starting to practice in any number of, a number of ways. But again, it's, um, I'm beginning to be a little bit more selective just because I have a few more options now that I'm starting to get some steam with the show. But, you know, I, I kind of have to say yes to whoever I get because it takes about six weeks just to get somebody on the show. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so you, um, you must take suggestions from, uh, your listeners. I do. And I'll j just, just, just because this is so helpful to get suggestions. Yeah. Um, the best way to get suggestions is actually not to tell me the person's name, but to, you know, do you know them well enough to actually make the introduction for me? Because yeah. that's one of the most time consuming aspects to, to first explain what the show is, um, but then convincing them that it's worthwhile. And then from that point forward, it takes about four weeks to find time just to get them on the show. I'm noticing a lot of your guests seem to have some prevalence in either media or like being on with Brian Gumbel. Um, a lot of them <laughs> have written books and not just like chapters of academic books, but books like things that would be in Barnes and Noble. Some even have podcasts so or mm -hmm. way into it. So do you think it's just by chance you're pulling up these sort of media savvy physicians? Are they more willing to talk? What do you think's going on here? Yeah, so I think most of it is luck so far because I've been just going off of referrals. So the family medicine physician episode uh, 16, and let me just back up a sec. The first 15 episodes I recorded, you know, like I recorded it before I launched November 11th. And so I had those in the bank and queued up ready to launch in iTunes. And, and from November 4th forward is when I started to look for more physicians on my own. And so episode 16 was the first time that I reached out to somebody. It was actually through Twitter. This is Dr. Steve Brown. He's part of the uh, uh, American Family Physician podcast, which is the official podcast of American Family Physician magazine or website or whatever it is. And I just, you know, I didn't tweet at him, but I sent him a, a direct message and he got back to me almost immediately. And I was like, hey, do you want to be on the show? And he was like, I would love to be on the show. And it was the quickest pickup I've ever had in my life. And it took us like three days to record the interview. It was it was unbelievable. So that I would say was less luck, but the first fifteen are almost totally luck. And I would say most of the episodes after episode sixteen are are luck because it's all referrals. It's very difficult to get someone on the show without somebody recommending me first. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite episode so far? You know, it's so I think episode sixteen is my favorite, um, partly for personal reasons. Like I. I edited all previous 15 episodes and I learned a lot about what works and what doesn't. And so I went into episode 16 with a better roadmap of what I wanted to get out of the interview. And plus Dr. Brand was such an amazing guest, you know, Dave Cole, we talked about how it's really nice to have somebody who understands audio and I don't have to explain that to them. And, you know, so he knew how to behave from an audio perspective and he was an amazing guest. So that was one of my favorite episodes. I wanted to ask you about this, someone who wrote something in parallel. It was, uh, are you familiar with Kevin MD? It's sort of this med school. Yeah, I know. Okay. I, I know that name and I've looked at the website. I'm, I couldn't tell you what Kevin MD is about. It seems like it's about a lot of things. He hosts a lot of articles, but yeah. I know what he is and who he is. 
well, he hosted this. Um, it's Laurel Fix. So she's a, I think she's a residency director out of Indiana. She wrote an article called "You Don't Have to Love Your Specialty." Here's why. Um, and she went through sort of all the advice, which you even touch on this. So it's like, um, you know, no one would want to go to a female urologist or choose surgery if you can't live out the OR. You'll, you know, family medicine's boring. Like she went through all these stereotypes and she was freaking out. She ended up choosing medicine. Um, and the reason she chose it because she felt like she could be. She said, you know, exact quote: "I could be a pluripotent." Uh, mm-hmm. physician going forward which is sort of you know reminiscent of your undifferentiated student um what do you think about that though where she almost says it doesn't have to be make or break even after you choose it's not the end of your world like you don't choose this route and then you're locked in yeah so i i agree and i i don't agree but i think i agree more than i don't agree um so why do we go into medicine and i'm sure it's some variation of i like medical science i want you know, to serve others. And there's something so special about human relationships. And you can find those three things in any area of medicine. So I do think that you could pick almost anything and be happy with it because the reward is not necessarily the specific area of medicine. It's the interactions with patients. It's the application of your own knowledge and, you know, serving society. However, you know, I think that your specialty, what you choose to be your specialty, will influence sort of the science that you get to think about on a daily basis. It might um, influence the patient population that you get to see on a daily basis, the, the, the tools and toys that you get to play with. Um, and so when you choose a specialty, a lot of doors open, but at the same time, I would say more doors close. So it is a very important decision. And yes, you can back up. And yes, if you really want to, you can, you know, do your intern year over again, go to the bottom of the totem pole and suffer through. Yeah, because that sounds awesome. It's, that sounds so awesome. Yeah. But listen, and, and again, I think residency is going to be awesome because you're going to be learning to be a doctor, learning to take care of people, develop the reflexes to actually heal people. And how awesome is that? That's, that's pretty awesome. That's the closest thing to magic I've ever heard in my life. So I'm looking forward to doing it. But it's hard. And then you add on top of that, you know, you make less money. You might have kids by that time. You might already have kids. Um, you want to spend time with your hobbies and your loved ones. So yeah, go ahead and reverse course and do another four year residency by all means. But man, would that hurt in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Ian, I'm hoping to get some context on this. You already mentioned how, you know, when we're coming into med school, we all have our own reasons of why we want to join medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as we transition in med school and learn more, um, at a certain point, I guess we start getting experiences and decide uh, what specialty you want to do. Um, and so like your platform allows us to hear a lot about different kinds of, uh, fields and kind of get context in that. But I'm guess, I guess I'm wondering how did people make those decisions in the past? That's probably a hard question because everyone has different reasons, but I guess in your own experience from the past and from people, you know, how was, how are those decisions made? How did decisions get made? Honestly, it feels like a lot of gut decisions. I mean, people usually say, you know, I I started with the decision of surgery or non-surgery or, you know, surgery versus medicine. And people will say like, oh, I just didn't feel like I was a surgical person. I'm not good with my hands or something. And so they're like, oh, so I decided medicine. But really medicine means internal medicine, pediatrics. 
Um, so that's the initial branch point that I hear a lot of physicians talk about. Gotcha. Um, so this is actually something that I'm still trying to, to work out. Like, what is the best algorithm to think through this? What are the important talking points? And I'll be honest, I still am collecting my own thoughts on this. So I don't... We had a... I mean, we had a, um, an orthopedic resident call in um, to the show not too long ago and, 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 and tell us... Um, I can't remember the context, but it, and tell us that... Um, Basically, that a lot of people seem to make their decisions based on the residents that they interacted with during their rotations sure. and the, you know, the environment that they experienced in that particular moment, um, you know, and, and other, you know, sort of less, I don't know, objective measures of satisfaction of, of how one might be satisfied with a particular it sounds uh, very un unmedical student esque. Yeah, we are we're being hit so hard with evidence based medicine. Like we're making these decisions on like little to no hard evidence. Where's my systematic review that I yeah. can read about this? Yeah, absolutely. One physician described it as it's a collection of idiosyncratic experiences. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And chances are this collection of experiences is not representative of what a specialty is and how you can practice it. So if you get it right, if, if a physician finds the specialty that they truly love and are in love with, how do you reproduce that thought process and decision-making process? And really the question ultimately becomes is how do you reproduce serendipity? And I hate that, you know, how, what is there to learn from that other than to say, well, you can't control it, so don't try. Well, what's nice about what you're doing is that you're, you're talking with uh, you're, generally speaking, it seems it looks like you're talking with people who are, you know, s somewhat advanced in their careers. They've they've gone through many of the steps that you have. They've gone through a couple of different, maybe a few different positions, definitely, or or whatever. And so they sort of present a, a gestalt of their experiences when they talk to you. Definitely. Um, so that you're not, you know, if you're if if all you're basing it on is your interaction with residents during your clerkships, you know, you're getting a really small, you know, data set to work from. So, yeah. So just, just so other listeners out there know how I structure my interviews and, uh, what, what makes it so much fun for me to ask physicians, all the questions that I do is that the first part of my interview is asking them basically all the objective information about their specialty. You know, tell me, tell me your weekly schedule. Tell me a typical patient. Tell me a typical outcome for this patient. You know, what do you get excited about? What's mundane about your specialty? What do you wish you had known about your specialty? What would you encourage a medical student to think about before they go into your specialty? And then my favorite question, you know, all the different contexts, inpatient versus outpatient and all of that, rural versus urban. And then tell me about the biggest challenges facing your specialty and where your specialty is going to be in the next 10 to 15 years. And then the second part of my interview is, okay, great. We now know all that objection, objective information. Now tell me how you decided the specialty was right for you. And so I asked them about their struggles and, and the factors that ended up weighing most heavily in their decision. And the last part of the interview is about, okay, great. Now tell me how, now, now give me long-term career advice irrespective of the field that you went into. If you could go back and do it all again, what would you do the same and what would you do differently and why? And annoyingly, a lot of physicians say, like, well, I love my career, so I wouldn't change anything. So I say, fine. Okay, what career mistakes have you seen other physicians make? And then that's when the conversation starts. And I say, okay, well, now what decisions have you seen other physicians make well and has made you want to emulate them? 
So now we're really talking about some emotional answers there. And then the last question I ask is, so, and it's a, it's a variation on the same question, but it usually elicits a different answer. What are you struggling with today? What are you doing to fix it? And what would you recommend a medical student do to avoid this problem entirely in the future? Hmm. And so uh, you really do get just so many random tangential ideas that are very important, in my opinion, for medical students to hear. And I'll give you an example from um, my most recent episode that actually launched today. It was cardiology with Dr. Richard Josephson. And I was like, so what's, what's one thing that you wish you had, or what was the question? Like, what do you wish you had done differently? He was like, you know what? I wish I had gotten involved in administration a little bit earlier. You know, I didn't learn anything about administration um, in medical school, so I figured I didn't know how to do that. And then, you know, five years into my career, I noticed that uh, there were a bunch of nurses occupying mid-level administrative positions, and I knew they didn't get that training in nursing school. So what are they doing? And and the fact is, like, you get a lot of training on the job. Yep. Um, and he said, so I wanted to get, I got involved in administration because, you know, you don't need a degree to do that, and it's made my life richer because I now get to you know, enact clinical practice guidelines or, you know, quality improvement measures that makes me feel like I can extend the benefit of what I have to offer as one example of many that come up in these random conversations. Hmm. It's really interesting because uh, we recently, at the College of Medicine, we recently, uh, and students sort of um, helped actually cause this to come into being, but a healthcare management um, oh, sort yeah. of distinction track um, but that's, you know, that's, that's unusual. I mean, it's, you're right. It's totally on the job training as far as, you know, getting into administration or some of these other, um, areas of, of, of medicine that are sorely needed. And yet, you know, it's basically like you get tapped, maybe you get tapped if nobody else wants it or, or, yeah. or yeah, but if you like know that. it exists, you might seek it out. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't, administration for administration's sake doesn't sound that awesome to me, but you know, at some point in your career, you might want to do that. And yeah. if you know it's coming, well, maybe you'll take that random audit course from the university in management or something, or mm -hmm. read that book on how to communicate with people. You know, I, I don't know what it is, but there's so many things to think about. And through these conversations, I personally have been, you know, just adding little, little tidbits here and there about, okay, maybe I don't have to think about that now, but if, if an opportunity crosses my desk, I might take it now that I understand what it, how I might be able to apply it later. Ian, I have a question. Okay. What are you going into? <laughs> Nicole, did you encourage this? No, I wrote it on a chalkboard. <laughs> so I'm still struggling with this, but I think that I'm still at the surgery, non-surgery branch point. And so orthopedics has always been on the table for me, but really... Uh, many things have been on the table. Orthopedics has probably been on the table for the longest. But I don't think I'm cut out for a surgical career. I think that what surgeons do is sexy, but I don't think that I would necessarily enjoy doing what they have to do on a daily basis for the next 20 to 30 years. Um, I also feel like I'm a people person, more or less, and I like human interactions, and that includes with patients and colleagues. And you get this in all specialties, by the way, which sort of muddies uh, know what I'm about to say but I think I'll get more of that in medicine but I also like adults and kids and I don't want to eliminate either one of those patient populations so I'm actually thinking med peds and so why med peds and not family medicine which includes pediatrics adults and OBGYN and a little bit of psychiatry 
feel like MedPeds offers more inpatient training versus outpatient. I think family medicine is a little more ambulatory. And I like sort of, I guess, more or less the acute care of patients. And that doesn't mean ICU acute, but it might mean sort of, okay, somebody popped into the ED and they have a problem that they would like to have taken care of right now over the course of, say, a couple of days. And I think inpatient medicine happens a little bit faster. You have access to more, you know, diagnostic ability, which is cool. You get to ask a question and then you can probe it with a diagnostic test test and that and that kind of medicine seems cool to me so med peds for right now i was thinking about some of these people that chose their specialty and i think we all do revisionist history i think if i Mm -hmm. i want to go into pmnr and i think 30 years from now when i'm you know well established or even retiring i think i'll have this revisionist history about how i was i knew i wanted to do it in med school and it was such a good fit and the truth is it was sort of a give and take and it was a thought process and probably if they got me on a tuesday i could have gone down another route but they got me on a wednesday and then there's the practical side of grades, boards, um, connections to the field, um, research you've done, sort of these more incidental things. And I was wondering, I've not heard of your, any, of you, any of your interviewees yet say, well, you know, I want to do this, but I really didn't have the scores to do that. Or I, I haven't seen that as much, but I think that's fairly real, to be honest. And it's sort of not discussed a lot. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I don't ask those questions because I think that they would take too much time away from other questions that I want to ask. And I think that board scores, uh, how much money you make in the field, one, are very real variables and are definitely being taken into account. And I, I imagine that, at least on the money standpoint, physicians probably don't necessarily want to go on the record saying, like, yeah, I was going to make banks, so I went into this. You're not going to hear a physician say that. Sure. But they're definitely real variables. I don't ask about them because I think that that information can be found on the careers in medicine website. They have wonderful stats on all of the, all of the metrics of their field. Um, I don't ask about it just because I think it would take away in a way that I wouldn't want to see happen from the rest of the interview. As of, but if you want to be a neurosurgeon, yeah, I'm pretty sure you have to have an awesome board score. <laughs> One of the other cool things this does is it not only lets people express to you um, what they like about a field, what they don't like, but it also puts a face to a field that you might uh, not have traditionally associated. And the two fields that come to mind particularly is you had a female CT surgeon and a female neurosurgeon, both mm-hmm. of which are predominantly male fields. I think that's a very interesting approach to the podcast too, because then you know maybe maybe you're a female and at your institution you only saw male neurosurgeons and you kind of it wasn't even on the plate. And then you see this podcast, you think, oh, it's very much a possibility for me. Definitely. And I can't say I planned that. Again, I go off of referrals. And the other problem I'm having is that most of my guests are old white dudes. And I have noticed that. But I was not going to say anything. Is that they refer you to old, more old white dudes. And so I'm like, all right. But let's be well, honest, how many old white dudes are in their later stages of medicine right a now? A lot. And this is, I'm, I'm so glad you acknowledge that. There is probably a demographic uh, issue that I'm up against. You know, older male physicians probably grew up in a time when there were really only other white guys going into the field. That's, please, I'm probably wrong on that on some level. But, you know, it's not that they're not trying to refer me to other, you know, races, ethnicities, institutions. It's just that that's who they grew up with. That's who they were in the trenches with when they were there in their intern year. Really trying to get around that, by the way. So there is more diversity coming. Again, logistically, it's much easier to say yes to an interview than to say no. You know. Yeah, you're not the right fit for what I want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I'm aware if, of it. 
if I pivot to some of the M1s here and get their perspective really quick Please, on Please, yeah, I'm doing a lot of talking, sorry. What do you guys think about all this residency? Is it on your mind? I need to choose a specialty. Is it so far in the future? What what goes through your head right now? I am definitely thinking about it, but more in a way of like eliminating things. So I know there's certain fields like as I'm being exposed to them during our classes, I'm like, I don't like learning the science of this, so I'm kind of in, kind of adding them to the I don't think this is going to be on my residency option. <laughs> but Hillary, you only see a very small sliver of that specialty. How do you know that you don't like all of it? I don't. I'm not like excluding everything at this point, but I'm adding like to stages of like, oh, I'm not really sure about this right now, but we'll see once I get into clinics. Definitely. Too. I was just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, but no, definitely. I don't want to like completely exclude everything right out right. I feel like a complete noob because I am. <laughs> I don't. I don't know anything about medicine, and so I feel like, you know, I, I I don't know what I don't know, and so I I that basically I have zero zero ideas on what I want to do, um, and I think I have been taking an approach like Hillary, where when we learn something, I might be like, oh, is this kind of interesting, or I don't understand this at all. <laughs> so maybe this isn't a field that I'd go into. But at this point, I'm. I'm still keeping my options open. And you should. Yeah. Yeah. I am getting kind of involved with some of the different, uh, some different extracurriculars, I guess. Uh, and in that way, like reaching out to physicians, like I'm the physician liaison for pediatric interest group. That way you can just talk to physicians on a very casual basis, kind yeah. of like what you're doing. Um, and I know that I don't want to be a surgeon, so I've already done that one narrow down. <laughs> but uh, then I'm also but then I'm also like do I not want to be a surgeon because of the lifestyle or because like I don't see a lot of females in that and the whole lifestyle thing for females is just different I don't know yeah and if you had a very close mentor who was you know a female surgeon who yeah. encouraged you to go into would you have gone into it and would you have been awesome at it I don't know, there, probably not. Real questions. But... <laughs> We're Dude. not going to look at my anatomy scores for that one. I think what part of, I might be going off on a, a tangent here a little bit, but I, part of the problem that I am detecting in all of these responses is something that I experienced in that part of the reason that I didn't explore more earlier in my career is that I felt like I just didn't know enough medicine to start asking the right questions. Exactly. You said, I don't yes. know what I don't know. I mean, yeah. so I, how am I supposed to ask the right questions? And we're too freaking busy to even like think about <laughs> anything other than like neuroanatomy at this point. Back to back to back tests. Yeah. So. Definitely. Well, they, you In, know, like they, they have you now do, you know, here anyway, early clinical experiences. So you, you know, nice. within your, uh, your first semester, you're already starting to get exposure into the clinics. And that's, uh, Ian, for background for you is, is fairly new to, to what we do here at the College of Medicine. I don't know if it's common elsewhere, but, but, um, so, so that's kind of trying. a leg up. Yeah, they're trying with the whole change in the curriculum. They're trying to in introduce other things. But I think just the way medical education is, it doesn't, it's not training you for your, what you're going to do for a while, if that makes any sense. And also to explore what you might do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, part I, of it is knowing like the possibilities. And, uh, you know, you only get to explore a small number of possibilities, even if you're given time to do that. So that's I mean, and again, I think that that's why I love the idea of the podcast, because you might hesitate to go ask out and bother somebody. I personally have hesitated to go out and bother people about what they do with their specialty. But 
by recording these conversations, anybody can be a fly on the wall for these conversations, which I really hope uh, is helpful, obviously. Um, and then to go back about, uh, I think it was Liza or Hillary, you, one of you said that the curriculum is trying to do things with these early clinical exposures, or they're trying to do things to help medical students think through these this process. But I had a very interesting discussion with one of my student deans. By the way, I go to Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. I, it's not necessarily a secret that I'm trying to keep. I don't put it on my website just because for various reasons that don't need to be mentioned here. But so we talked about should... You've already me, done it. Now the, Now everybody's yeah. going, hmm, why? <laughs> should bleep, you should bleep it out. Go check bleep it out. out. <laughs> uh, but the discussion we had was... Should these changes be curricular or non-curricular? Should, you know, they be uh, decided on high about what medical students should do to decide their specialties? Or should we do non-curricular things by which I took to, to mean, can, what can we do to empower the individual to explore on his or her own? And I'll give you an example of this. Um, one thing that I wish I had learned early on was how to scrub. <laughs> um, because if you know how to scrub, um, if a physician asks you and, you and you're asking a physician who's a surgeon to shadow and they say, well, can you scrub? And your answer is no. You know what? You know what they're going to do? They're going to be like, mm, well, I'm not going to teach you. So I don't know. You can stand in the corner if you want. But if you can say yes to that, then automatically they are more likely to say, like, yeah, come on to the OR. And they might even say, hey, do you want to scrub in? And if you can say yes to that, you've just increased the odds that you're going to have an awesome learning ex experience. Um, that's just, just one example. super interesting because, I mean, it's that's not a hard thing to learn. Not, those things aren't difficult to learn. And then what comes, what comes with probably learning the scrub is understanding the social dynamic and hierarchy and the OR, you know, the surgeon, the scrub nurse, the scrub tech, the circulator. And if you can walk in there with confidence knowing how to behave and, you know, like a good little medical student, write your name up on the board, you know, all of a sudden, you know, these scary figures in the OR. Well, now are I'm not, scared. I wasn't you know, scared, but now I'm scared. You. You're like, I know how to behave now, and, and they become human beings. Yeah. You just don't worry about it. You just stand in the back, <laughs> you know, as far away from the patient as possible. Try not to breathe. Try, yeah. Don't fall into the sterile field. Part of this speaks Try to, not to faint. the watered down, not watered down, well, the watered down clinical experience where in a past, a medical student could write a note that could then be co-signed by a physician. A med student could place a catheter unsupervised. They could start an IV line. Um, I think many of us still do these under close supervision, but I think it's changed a little bit. And when I was on urology, one of the physicians was saying, you know, how did I know I loved urology? He said, I was scared S-less when I placed my first catheter. And he yeah. knew how much he cared about it. And at that moment, he's like, I think I want to do this. I want to get better at this because mm. this is so frightening to me that I care about it. Which sounds like a weird way to learn. It's but like I, the very opposite way I learn. If uh, yeah. I am scared <laughs> S-less, then I don't do it. Yeah, that, that's a personality I am, right there. Yeah, it's I tough when you're shadowing. And I think even diagnostic radiology is a great example that it is so not entertaining in that room when you're looking over their shoulder when you're making the call on the acute pneumoperitoneum mm -hmm. it's the most interesting thing in the world and that's something you can never really convey through a curriculum yeah yeah oh and you know what so uh Tarun, you said you felt like a noob yeah i still feel like a noob <laughs> but but i honestly didn't really feel even prepared to start having a discussion about what I wanted to do with my career until the end of my third year when I had, mm -hmm. you know, rotated through all the major specialties and sort of 
you know, saw what was important. You know, I lived it. I, I saw it. I touched it. I smelled it. Hopefully I didn't taste it, but I got a better <laughs> idea it. of what it was like to be in those specialties. And then I felt more comfortable asking the right questions um, because a big barrier to understanding something about a specialty, like Cole, you, I think you were alluding to this in the example of diagnostic radiology. Well, there's a lot going on in that radiologist's head that we're not privy to. We don't even know the language yet. You know, we don't understand that the disease is or how to pronounce the words. And so to start thinking about what they find satisfying, first we have to, you know, have a little basic knowledge about what they do, which involves our preclinical studies, but it also involves our clinical rotations. So a lot is happening that we can't really experience yet. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that really shows how you can't have just like one algorithm or one formula that works for anyone. So I really like what you're doing where you're just, you know, you're compiling and you're putting a lot of people's experiences on there and letting people kind of listen to it and figure it out for themselves. And I think that's a really good approach. So glad to hear you say that. Yeah, me as well. Our, me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're noobs to this. We too. are, very, we are uber, no, uber noobs. Um, I was also thinking like I, because your show is a little bit longer and we have a limited time, I will listen double to... Double speed. Jordan, double double speed. speed. I double speed everything nowadays. Yeah. I, double, I go as fast as I can. It hurts <laughs> me when I can't do at least 1.5x. We were, we were talking before the show and, that, and, and uh, Ian and I both confessed that we even edit at double speed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was saying like I was listening to one interview and I was like, you know what? I don't really like this guy. I don't think I would be. I don't think I would be friends with him. I don't think I'd be good colleagues with him. Person. Not that he's a mean person. I just didn't. I just didn't think that I would be a very good colleague to him, or want to be like him. So I was like, maybe that might not be something I want to do. Yeah, a real um, thing. It's yeah. A real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, and then I listened to another guy that I was like, yes. <laughs> so I think just knowing the people and getting to know yeah, the people. Sure. Is a good way to do it. Power of audio. I, I know we're preaching to the choir when we speak to one another, Dave, but I am obsessed with podcasts and audiobooks, and it's it's for this reason. You come to know, like, and trust the people that you're listening to because you get their personality. Again, you get the, the intonation and the emphasis and the, the hesitations that they have when they're doing these interviews. And the other thing I love about podcasts is that you can do them while doing something else, which you can't do with yeah, video, even exactly. with the same audio. But, you know, every morning when I'm making breakfast, I'm listening to something. Then on the walk to the, the walk to school, the drive to work, you know, washing dishes when I get home, I'm always listening. So you can you can be listening to these <laughs> super long interviews while doing something else and double tasking, in addition to listening on increased speed. And by the way, I record these interviews with such an audio quality so that you can do that. So please <laughs> take advantage of that. Ability. Noted. Oh, I th- one uh, nice illustration was that is. You were talking to the pediatric surgeon. This guy has like he also, in addition to being a pediatric surgeon, goes like he served three tours. Um, he served as a general surgeon, trauma. He's kind of like the ultimate like just cool surgeon guy. Yeah, and you asked military him, guys are turbo. Awesome, turbo. You can tell. I mean, he's just he's very good at what he does, and he's very respected. And you asked him what he didn't like about his job, and you could hear this audible sigh, and he's like. Children's constipation. <laughs> he said 25% of his clinic is just telling mom and dad how to like just wait out this little bit of constipation. And you know, this is a guy who's like God of his field. Love it. Oh, yeah. Well, the common answer, I, I mean, 
might could be paperwork so i think that's a yeah. better answer oh and whenever they say that now i jump on them I'm like this is not unique to your specialty <laughs> <laughs> not a good answer I, try again more or less i i i'm trying to say it you know politically but i'm like let's let's keep it specific to your specialty and not paperwork although i think paperwork really seems to be a huge drawback to for a lot of physicians but i mean you know if you don't like to do paperwork don't do any job Right, but I think, do you know what I'm saying? You know, like, be a bum. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I will take that job. <laughs> Professional <laughs> bum. <laughs> yes, please. I would love to do that, actually. Great. Um, but I think I unfairly, you know, in my head, called a lot of physicians, you know, like luddites for not knowing how to use a computer, and that that was the root of the problem. But I've recently started looking in the history of paperwork. And it used to start, it started out in like the 1960s, the version that we have today. And it was like, okay, well, we need to write a thorough note so we can communicate well with other physicians. Granted, then sort of legal implications came in. Well, you know, I'm going to get sued if I don't uh, write the proper things in the note. So notes got longer. Then notes started to be audited as sort of a legal document. So if you didn't say certain things, well, then you really might find yourself in trouble. And then you start having the electronic medical record, which automatically populates these fields for you that you have to fill out. And the thing about the electronic medical record is that unless you click the right button, uh, you cannot move forward. It's not like a paper chart and you can flip by it. You cannot move forward. So you may not write the note that you need to write until you've answered questions that uh, other people want you to answer. <laughs> and these other people which, which kind of got me angry, are not necessarily physicians. Some of them are governmental entities, and this is great, there's some oversight, but so, there, some of it is, I believe, third parties wanting to do research. So now you have more questions that you need answered. And I don't know if you guys have seen that Z-Dog MV music video mm -hmm. it's about the EHR, but it, one of the lines, and it's so appropriate, is 30 clicks for an ambient, and that's representative of what you have to do to, to write a relatively simple script. So. The, e the EHR, the EMR, the electronic health record, electronic medical record, is really becoming a pain in the side of a lot of physicians in a way that I didn't realize it was. Because as medical students, we are not responsible for the EMR, so we don't see it that way. But I think this is in part what leads, not in, to not in totality, but in part what can lead to burnout when you have a mismatch of expectations between what you think you're going to be able to do as a physician and then what you're actually doing. And I think the EHR really takes a lot of your time away that you would otherwise spend on the patient, developing those relationships, thinking about medicine and applying those skills that you've learned. That's something though, I think nice about not only your podcast, but culture in general, which is this is our first generation of medical students entering very aware of these problems. So I yeah. think if you talk to an older physician, they'll say, I just didn't think it'd be all medical legal notes. And when I got into it, I knew I'd heard all the grumblings of the physicians. I heard that insurance rates were being cut. I had heard that there were long hours. So when I showed up, it was almost like, oh, this is exactly what they said it would be. Um, and I think that sort of works to your benefit because then your, your bar isn't set too high. Yeah, but then <laughs> when we become practicing physicians, what else are we going to have to do? Interesting it's point. just going to mm -hmm. keep changing. So I think... The biggest thing is to be flexible. Sure. I mean, medical education kind of helps you do that. Well, I, I think um, the other thing, and this is what I like about, um, this is this is why I think podcasting is important, um, by the way, if I can get meta again, <laughs> um, it is that um, MDs, just lately, MDs and even more, and also PhDs too, are suddenly sort of 
fully, maybe more fully realizing that theirs is a um, a profession that is, you know, number one, political, um, uh, and number two, really should have a place in the public discourse, and and so podcasting, as democratic as it is, because nobody controls podcasting really. Yeah. Um, there's not a, it's not built on a single platform yet it's not well <laughs> you know like it's it's built on open and on open systems mm-hmm. and while i you know itunes is where most people get their their podcasts you don't have to get them from itunes you can get them in other ways and and nobody controls those other ways and so i guess what i'm saying is like podcasting is great for getting your message out there um because you can you can basically say you know, whatever you want, whenever you want, to whomever you want, to whomever will listen to you. And I think um, I, I, this is why I like to encourage medical students and others to consider podcasting because it's it's it can be a voice. Yeah, it's it's almost like public radio, but I would say it's like asynchronous public radio. Yeah, you don't have to be there in real time to hear the conversation, but the conversations take a more uh, they happen more in the present day more or less. So like this, this episode I'm sure will launch sometime in the next month or two. And next so week. It, it is a more current documentation of what's going on, but in conversational format. Yeah. Well, uh, we are out of time. That's our show. Uh, Ian Drummond, thank you so much. I just wanted to say thank you for personally reaching out to me and inviting me on the show. And then uh, Cole, Liza, Tarun, and Hillary, thank you so much for uh, having this chat with me. Thank Thanks, you. Ian. Thank you. Ian Drummond is host of the Undifferentiated Medical Student Podcast, available wherever you get fine podcasts. And thanks to uh, Liza, Tarun, and Cole, and Hillary for being on the show today. Appreciate that. You're welcome, Dave. No problem. Thank you, listeners, for making us a part of your week. You, We know you have other internet entertainment you could cram into your auditory meatus, and we're glad you chose us. <laughs> if you like what you heard today, consider sharing us with your colleagues. If you have a suggestion for something we should talk about, send it to the shortcodes at gmail.com or leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. Like our Facebook page, where almost every week, except for this one, I ask listeners to send in their thoughts on allegedly profound things. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government and the Writing and Humanities program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox. And our closing music is by Argo Fox. Talk to you in one week. 